Evan Hope. It's lonely up here. Thank you, thank you. It's really beautiful blessing to be in the house of, of God and to see so many of you in church and on Zoom. This community is very special and that's why we're here every Sabbath. And as I've said many times before, it's special because of you. It's a beautiful building and a very beautiful part of, of the city, but doesn't beat you, this mosaic of beautiful people coming together with one purpose, one goal, one destiny. I always want to thank the staff in the back that makes this happen, Rodrigo, Peterson, Frank, Joaquin, Angela and Michael, just beautiful music, Aaron. Um, we're really, really blessed to have this community. Um, and I'm honored to be sitting in this, in this holy space. The text that I'd like us to focus on this morning is 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 and 5, a familiar text in the love chapter of Corinthians. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrong. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for always meeting us for this date every Sabbath. We thank you for having this special place in your heart for Advent Hope. And now I ask that you will cover me with your righteousness and hide me from anything that's going to interfere with your message to your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. On appearance, Jonathan was your average inner city teenager. At 17, he was tall and lanky, and on hot summer days, like other neighborhood boys, he blended in with the ubiquitous uniform of the street. Basic white tank top, basketball shorts pulled low below the waist, a do-rag, ankle socks, and slides. He lived where he had grown up in a poor and rough part of town on the first floor of his apartment building. His bedroom faced the concrete courtyard where people of all ages hung out constantly, smoking, drinking, playing dice, and shouting loudly so they could hear each other over the ever-present uncensored loud music that seemed to play all through the day and night. Jonathan didn't consider the disturbance a nuisance because this is how he lived, and this is all he knew. It was just the way it was, at least until that unforgettable early Monday morning. His mother worked long hours, and so Jonathan was often left home alone. He grew up fast. He was a B student. Now, to many of you, that might not seem like a big deal, but for a 17-year-old who lived where Jerome lived, where Jonathan lived, under his family circumstances and conditions, this made him very, very special. Many of his friends were not going to school regularly, let alone getting above average grades. 
Yes, Jonathan may have been considered an okay student, but he was not an average teenager. You see, he had a vision and a plan, an escape plan that would allow him to one day break free of the cycle of poverty and move with his family somewhere, anywhere, where the nights were not disturbed by loud noises and screams and bright security spotlights, somewhere where the streets were clean of paraphernalia that spoke of the desperation, neglect, and pain of his community, somewhere where the nights were quiet, quiet enough so that he could do more than just sleep, where he could dream, dream about his ambitions and where his love for reading and learning would not have to be his secret anymore. It was close to 1 a.m. and hot, very hot. The single standing fan in his room was more symbolic than it was useful. It did nothing more than create a hypnotizing hum and wrap the unwanted blankets of hot air around him. He had school later that day and he was tired. He wanted to sleep. But as if for the first time in his 17 years, he couldn't stop hearing the usual chaos of the night. The loud, familiar noises made by the same familiar voices and beats and songs just a few feet from his window. Frustration got the better of him. And so he jumped up out of his bed and stuck his head out of the window and he shouted, Yo, man, I have schools in a, school in a few hours. Can you guys just show a little respect for people who want to sleep? Well, perhaps he said it's a little more colorful than that. Jonathan's request fell on angry ears. And after a spirited back and forth between him and the group, his request was returned with a challenge. And that challenge soon became a threat. And that threat became an invitation to come outside. By this time, it was too late. Too late for Jonathan to back out. He was too far in. He knew all the players outside and they knew him. So if he backed out now, he would be a coward. All mouth, no action, a punk. He wasn't the little boy anymore. He was grown and further, he just couldn't afford to have that reputation in the neighborhood. Punks are never free. Filled with rage and a false sense of bravado, he reluctantly stormed to the front door of his apartment, then paused and quickly thought things through. Then he stepped back to grab the steak knife lying on the kitchen table, you know, just in case. The apparent ringleader of the group was out, outside was a large man of about 250 pounds, more than twice the size of Jonathan's 100-pound frame. He greeted Jonathan jeeringly and with even greater disrespect than he had dished out a few minutes before. The small crowd laughed as the, as the David stepped to the Goliath. Their anger got more intense with every insult, each attempting to outdo the other until the stakes were raised even higher 
when Goliath challenged you. So what are you going to do, punk? Stop talking trash and do something, do something already. Well, as you can imagine, it was a lot more colorful than that. At which point, he reached for his pants, waist, and assumed a fighting position. But as he reached, Jonathan wasn't going to take any chances and lunged forward towards his opponent and swung the knife quickly. And just as quickly, like the coward he truly was, he ran for dear life with Goliath and his army in full hot pursuit. Jonathan didn't get very far before he was caught by three of the group. They threw him to the ground and kicked and stomped and stabbed him repeatedly, puncturing his liver and lacerating several other organs. He managed to get up after his attackers had fled and stumbled to his apartment, knocked on the door and he collapsed in front of his mother and sisters in a pool of his own blood. When the police arrived, the crowd had long dispersed and the thumping beats and loud chatter were now replaced by swirling lights and the alarm of sirens. The ambulance transported Jonathan to the hospital where police rushed to get a statement in the event that he didn't make it. Next to him in the ER was another man surrounded by doctors working on him frantically. Unbeknownst to Jonathan, it was the large man he had fought with earlier. His glancing strike of the knife had lacerated a major blood vessel in his arm. While he ran after Jonathan, he bled out and collapsed and died. Jonathan miraculously survived and was charged with murder. But this is not a sermon about murder. As you can imagine, the family of the deceased was outraged and wanted more than just accountability. They wanted justice. And for them, justice was a long prison sentence, if not an eye for an eye. He brought a knife to a fist fight and killed my brother. They were just arguing. He didn't have to kill him. His sisters wept. A few days in the interview room, the sisters' angered, sisters' angers could be felt. They screamed and yelled for justice. It didn't matter that Jonathan was just 17 years old, a boy and a son of the neighborhood who everyone knew. It didn't matter that he was one against many, a boy against men. That may have been yesterday, but today he was a murderer. In the interview room of tears and cries of anguish sat a man. Though noticeably distraught, he wasn't saying anything. He just sat there staring ahead as if lost in his own thoughts, despite the strong excitement in the room. Mr. Cole, Mr. Cole, Mr. Cole, do you have anything to say? The interviewer asked. The room went silent. There was a long pause. 
Then Mr. Cole spoke, tears flooding his eyes. I have lost my son. Nothing will bring him back. Let the boy go. I don't want another father to lose his son. This is not a sermon about murder, but about the miracle of forgiveness. I was inspired to tell this story after recently speaking to a colleague of mine. I've known her for many years. She's a bright, successful woman, married with three children, and from all appearances, living a very happy life. On this day, however, she wanted to talk, and as busy as I was, I realized that I had to listen. It was then that out of the blue, she shared that she was always tired, but hadn't been able to have a good night's sleep in 15 years. As a result, she was prone to bouts of sickness. I asked if she had consulted a doctor or a sleep professional. She said she had, but the prescriptions hadn't worked. We chinwagged for a little while longer for what seemed like my hopeless efforts to find answers for her. I recommended her taking some time off to spend with her family. Go and see your dad, your mom, and relax. She then remarked that she hadn't spoken to her dad in 15 years. Coincidence? She had loved her dad but decided never to speak to him again after he betrayed her and her family. I asked her if she had ever thought of reaching out since she was now much older and had children. She said that she wanted to return his calls for 15 years now, but she just couldn't bring herself to forgive him. As I mulled over my thoughts for my talk with you today, I realized that I hadn't given much thought to what true forgiveness really is and its incredible power to transform the forgiven and more so the forgiver. It's one thing to forgive someone for stepping on your toe or breaking the line or jumping into a taxi you hailed before you could. But something extraordinary must take place within a person to forgive someone who has betrayed their trust, subjected them to years of verbal, mental, physical, or sexual abuse, neglected or deserted them, inflicted lasting pain or leaving them scarred for life. You see, forgiveness is more than an apology of words without sincerity or depth of meaning. It's an affair of the heart that indicates a change in the relationship between the offended and the offender. It incites restoration and complete healing between the aggrieved parties. The forgiver and the forgiven are always left healthier, more peaceful, and free. There are two, at least two categories of forgiveness, unrequited forgiveness and transactional forgiveness. As the word implies, unrequited forgiveness is unilateral in nature with no expectation of reciprocity. The perfect example of unrequited forgiveness is found in Luke 22, verse 34. Jesus is on the cross and near death. Wrongfully accused, ridiculed, spit upon, his skin beaten off his body, a crown of thorns rammed on his head, and he's forced to carry his own cross. Nailed to the tree, 
spared in the side and left to die. Up until this point, he is perfect, sinless. But then on the cross, he becomes a sinner. Not because he has sinned, but because he has voluntarily and sacrificially assumed our sins. And the weight is too much for him to bear. And so he succumbs. And this is where it becomes incomprehensible. With his last breath, he declares, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It just doesn't make sense. What do you mean they don't know what they are doing? Of course they did. In fact, they were more than, it was more than knowledge. There was intent. But this speaks to the complexity of love in which forgiveness is inextricably interwoven. One does not exist without the other. It is impossible to love and not forgive. In fact, you cannot love anyone if you are not willing to love everyone. Yes, I know it's complicated, difficult even, but true forgiveness is a spiritual act of love. Here Jesus pleads forgiveness for those who do not even ask for it. In fact, they reject it and still he advocates on their behalf, arguing ignorance as a defense to justify before God why those who are murdering him should be forgiven. It doesn't make sense. But unrequited love is not informed or dependent on the other party. You may ask, what good is it if I forgive someone who does not want to be forgiven? Suppose I do not know where they are. Well, it doesn't matter if they accept your offering or not. Once you forgive, you are free of any responsibility or guilt completely liberated. Forgiveness is the key to freedom. It is the key to the prison that is anger and hurt and pain and sickness. And when we forgive, we are now liberated from that which was keeping us from moving from where we are, trapped to where God intends us to be. Do not let pride, anger or bitterness Get in the way of your God-designated and designed ambitions, progress, blessings, and destiny. Even if you don't want it, even if they don't want it, forgive them anyway. Your future peace and happiness depend on it. The other level of forgiveness is transactional forgiveness. It takes place where there is a desire to reconcile and restore a relationship that was broken. Both parties are involved. The offender is willing to confess and repent in order to restore what has been broken. One of the greatest stories in the Bible is that of Joseph. There are 50 chapters in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and 14 of those 50 chapters 37 through 50 are dedicated to the story of Joseph. It is probably the single best demonstration of transactional forgiveness. I suggest that it is not 
by happenstance that so much time is given to this story so early in the Bible. A fascinating story, replete with hubris, jealousy, betrayal, slavery, lust, seduction, deceit, repentance, and most important, forgiveness. If anyone had a reason to be angry and bitter, it was Joseph, sold into slavery by his own brothers with the expectancy that he would die as a slave. Now, he wasn't perfect nor blameless by any stretch of the imagination, but God had other designs because he knew the sincerity and forgiving nature of his heart, just as he does yours. Time will not permit us to distill the beauty in this story, but I encourage you to read it again. But this time, through the lens of forgiveness, it will be a brand new story. There is one verse in chapter 50 that is particularly compelling and profound. Verse 4, Then Joseph said to his brethren, Please come closer to me. This is the part in the story when we know that forgiveness has actually taken place. Before forgiveness is experienced, there is no trust between or desire to be near the offender. In fact, you don't want to be anywhere near them. Forgiveness has the opposite effect. You know when you have forgiven somebody, when you are at peace with that person again, occupying your mental, if not physical space. You are once again at peace with them and yourself. Now, it doesn't mean that you will not remember the offense or should pretend that it did not happen. Forgiveness doesn't even require that you be friends with the offender. Maybe it is important to your safety that you are not. Neither does it mean that you should not press charges if you were a victim of a crime. It also does not mean that your scars will disappear but rather that any scar you are left with now represents healing when before it was a reminder of your pain. After all, the perfect Son of God will bear his scars throughout eternity as a reminder of the power of his love offering of forgiveness on the cross, a sacrifice that will allow us to live for eternity, free of all guilt and pain and scars. Forgiveness is a knowing and intelligent decision based on faith, not human will or effort, that God can, God can and will fix what you are unable to so that you can let go and move on. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until you have something to forgive. It is never easy for any of us to admit wrong, let alone forgive, when we have been wronged. But not only is forgiveness necessary for freedom, it is not optional for salvation. It's mandatory. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said it very plainly, for if you forgive men and women when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive, them their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. It's not optional. 
Luke 6 verse 37 says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 verse 32 frames it slightly differently. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And similarly in Colossians 3 verse 13 he writes, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. When Peter, a man who knew from experience the value of forgiveness, wrote his first epistle, he summed it up this way. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. In the love chapter that features my text of emphasis, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5, while describing the, the greatest virtue, Paul declared that love keeps no record of wrongs. Eugene Peterson in his book, The Message, put it this way. Love doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Love doesn't keep score because love has a bad memory. It finds a way to forget the sins of others. Something extraordinary, nay supernatural, happens when we forgive. The roadblocks disappear. The tourniquet that was tightly wound around the vein through which God was intravenously transfusing us with blessings is released. Doors that were closed to your personal professional and love life will open and you will experience the peace that passeth understanding declared in my favorite text, Ephesians 3 verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power within us. Did you get that? Immeasurably more. Another version states, infinitely more, and yet another interprets it as far more than we dare imagine or ask. How wonderful is this text that speaks to an inexplicable God who recognizes that we are marvelously made in his image and accordingly, there is untapped greatness within each of us. Wherever we may find ourselves and in whatever condition that he is prepared to reveal beyond our wildest imagination and expectations. I speak especially to our young people. Don't set small goals. I'm not big on telling people to dream big, big, because we always wake up from dreams. Don't set small goals. Think and plan big. Don't ever settle. But he treats me right and he takes me out to nice places to eat and I don't feel as lonely anymore, someone said to me recently. Let's make something perfectly clear. There is nothing special about his making you feel special. When you are special, he's supposed to make you feel special. Infinitely more than you can ask for. Far more than you can dare imagine or ask. You are a child of a king. That makes you royalty. Do not settle. 
But that is a conversation for another Sabbath. The last time I preached on that, I got into a whole bunch of trouble. The only challenge that we have to face is making sure that there is nothing getting in the way of that reservoir that connects the blessings from God to us. So what is the first step? Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come back and offer your gift. We have to make the first step, the first move, if we truly want our gifts or our relationship with God to be acceptable. This is nothing, this is not something that we can pray our way out of. Prayer alone will not remove resentment and anger. Jesus wants to partner with you and bless you, but the bitterness and anger that you are holding onto creates the chasm that creates the separation that Stephen spoke about last week. Many of us think that as long as we reconcile in our minds through prayer, then we have reconciled our differences with God and man and woman. No, it doesn't work that way. Forgiveness is dynamic and requires us to move in the direction, a difficult direction, and make those difficult steps in a difficult space first. Simply put, if we are not willing to make things right with our brothers and sisters and parents and friends, we are not safe to save. We are a threat to the love that is heaven where that person who you refuse to forgive may just well be because they have forgiven you and the promise that sin will not have a sequel. I pray that if there is someone out there who you are harboring resentfulness towards because they have hurt you in some way, that you take that first step towards reconciliation. You are incapable of experiencing true love because that resentment, that state of unforgiveness for those who deserve, withdrawn, that resentment, that state of unforgiveness is robbing the energy and investment that should be reserved for those who deserve and who you choose to love. Love and hate can exist together no more than night can with darkness or sin with unrighteousness. With sin with righteousness, sorry. To put it clearly, maybe you do not have the will to forgive which requires you to do that first step. Maybe you don't have what it takes to love her or him who has wronged you. Well, that is where and when we end and the divine takes over and begins. We need only believe that he will take that first step with us. So today, let us make it right. Send a text if you are not ready to make a call. Send a handwritten letter that is, if you still remember how to hold a pen. Send a, 
an email or a text. Reach out no matter how difficult it is, as long as it is safe. And make the change that will make the difference. You deserve those doors that have long been shut to be opened wide again. And whatever burden you have been carrying to be lifted. Forgiveness will give you a chance for the new beginning. The new beginning that you have long waited for and deserve. A new start, a new opportunity, a brighter future. It will cleanse the mind and open the love valves of the heart, allowing us to experience a yet experience joy and happiness and the ability to love more and greater than when we were imprisoned by resentment and hate and anger. My prayer is that we leave here today not as conduits of conflict, but preachers of forgiveness and peace.